Thanks for downloading this week's Revolution Community Church podcast. We hope you are challenged by this talk and will share it with your family and friends. If this is your first encounter with Revolution, we hope you'll come and visit us at our Logan Sport campus located at 3324 East Market Street or check us out online at revolutioncc.org. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode at Revolution We Imagine 320. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Man, you guys look great and sound great this morning. Hey, my name is Joel. Like Anthony said, I am the campus pastor at Oakbrook Church in Kokomo, and um, I'm also kind of a fanboy of Revolution Community Church in Logansport, if we can say that. Uh, I've known Anthony for a really long time, and man, it is just so incredible what God is doing through you and through this movement in Logansport. Uh, it's just a privilege to be a small part of it. I think once a summer, I feel like the last couple of years, Anthony invites me out to hang out with you guys. So it is great to be with you. I'm so excited about the new facility in the old Staples building. I've been over there a couple times, and it is just amazing to see how this is going to revolutionize your community and how you guys are going to be a movement for Jesus in this place. I think it's just an amazing thing that you guys are a part of if you realize it or not. Um, but here we are this morning, and we're in a park, right? And that sun just got right above those trees, so I'm going to be like this the whole morning. So not a lot of Facebook pictures, please. Let's not do that. Uh, I'm so excited to be with you. As you guys are on this journey, uh, discovering, uh, serving, and understanding how we are shaped and designed to give ourselves away. Um, But as we get going this morning, I have a question for you. Um, Have you ever been in a situation when somebody thought that you were somebody that you weren't? Like they were certain that you were somebody else. I've had some moments like this about 10 years ago. um, I was at Indiana Beach, you know, where there's more than corn in Indiana, with some buddies of mine. And um, this was about 10 years ago, so I was about 20 pounds less. I had no glasses and a lot froier hair at the time. And this 10 or 11-year-old girl comes up to me, and she goes, "Ah, are are you John Mayer? And she's, like, really nervous about it. And she was serious. She was really serious. And she's like, can I get an autograph? John Mayer, and because I was a person of integrity, I said, of course I'm John Mayer, let me sign whatever you have, and uh, this girl, she was like shaking, and it was the funniest thing ever, and I just, I'm hoping that that, uh, that cup from Indiana Beach is on eBay somewhere, making her lots of money. I had another experience uh, a couple years ago, this, ac- this is actually still going on, but there's a high school friend of mine whose dad is certain that I am married to my sister-in-law. And she thinks that we are a couple, and they have a couple little kids. And on Facebook, anything that I say, anything that my sister-in-law says, uh, he is sure to say, oh, Joel, you really married up on my sister-in-law's pictures. And like, oh, I love your new baby, Joel, or all these kind of things. And in public, I run into him at a coffee shop all the time. And if I can just be honest with you, um, it's gone on so long now, I don't want to tell him. It's, it's really awkward. It's like at this point now, I'm like, yeah, yeah, pretty, my Ellie, she's pretty sweet. Or my sister-in-law will always text me and be like, I just ran into Gene again. And uh, he was asking how our marriage was and everything. So it's really awkward, really funny. And at this point, we're just going to let it lie. We're just going to let it go. And I can honestly say, I hope, you don't hear pastors say this very often, but I hope that Gene is not here this morning. It would be a really awkward way to break the news to him, right? But have you ever been in a situation like that when somebody was sure that you were somebody else and they start talking to you and it's so awkward and it's kind of a funny, light situation? I mean, you've maybe had experiences like that, uh, like I have, or maybe it's been more serious. But I think, you know, sometimes people think that we're someone we're not 
But I think the opposite of that can be true so often for us when it comes to our faith and the way that we interface with God in this world as well. Because I think that sometimes we actually are someone that we don't think that we are. And specifically, I believe that often God looks at us and he sees someone in us that we don't see in ourselves yet. I think more, more specific than that, I think when God sees you, he sees holy potential for eternal impact. That's something that he sees in you. He sees other things too. He sees a loved daughter or a loved son, but I think he also looks at each and every one of us, no matter what our story is, and he looks at us and he says, oh, I see holy impact, eternal potential that they can make a a mark on their world, on their neighborhood, on their community, through their church. I think when God sees you, he sees more than you see in yourself. We say all the time at our church in Oak Brook that the four most important letters of the alphabet are these right here, I see in you. And for us, that represents this important conversation that we think God has with us, but that we can have with other people too, called I see in you conversations. Because See, we believe, and I know that at the heart of revolution, you guys believe this too, that when God looks at you, he sees something in you. God says, I see in you this a powerful, powerful impact and the potential to make a difference no matter who you are, what your past is, where you are, or what's going on in your life and your circumstances. And I know as I say that this morning, that God sees more in you than you see in yourself. I can already like hear some of the excuses rolling off. I know last week Anthony shared a lot of excuses for why we sort of sit on the sidelines in our faith so often. But maybe this morning as I say that God sees in you holy potential for eternal impact, you might be saying, you know, that's, that's not me. I mean, I, I've just maybe started this whole faith journey thing, and I don't know the Bible very well. Or maybe at home in your marriage, you think, you know, our marriage is kind of rocky right now. We don't have it all together. Or maybe in the dark corners of your life, you've got some habits that are not healthy at all. And you're like, I would have to take care of this yet. Or you think, I can't come to church early and commit to certain times coming to church early because it's hard enough to get myself there for the second service by the end of the worship set. Maybe you're thinking that. We have all these excuses, or maybe you think, like, I'm just new to being a Christ follower, and I don't know exactly what I believe about everything, so I just need to come check things out. And we're reluctant to believe what I said, that God sees something in you bigger than what you see in yourself. So I know that's where a lot of us are at this morning, but what I want to do is I want to open up the scriptures, and I want to check out this account that is in the first big chunk of our Bible called the Old Testament, or God's First Testament. Um, And we're going to look at the story and account of a guy by the name of Moses, who was a very reluctant leader, who had about every excuse in the book, but God saw through his excuses, and God saw through his pain and his circumstances and his past, and God used him in a mighty, mighty way. But I know that I have a lot in common with Moses, and I think that we'll find that we all have a lot in common with Moses and his story as well this morning, as we're continuing to look at how we're shaped to serve and grow in this reality of serving inside the church. So as we dive into Moses' story this morning, I want to set the stage a little bit, give you a little bit of context for where we're going to pop into his story. You see, at this time in the Old Testament, God's people were called the Hebrews. This is before they were Israelites because they didn't even have their own nation, Israel. But they were called Hebrews, and they lived in the land of Egypt with the Egyptians, right alongside of the Egyptians. 
But the Egyptians were the power uh, authorities, and they were the ones that were in charge of the community at this time, because there were more of them. And they started to get nervous because the Hebrews kept multiplying over and over and over again to where they started to get nervous. And when they looked around their neighborhood, they saw more Hebrews than they saw Egyptians, and it made them very nervous. And so what they did was they turned to their public policy, and the Egyptian pharaoh, who was the ruler, they started thinking, what are some ways that we can keep the Hebrews down to make sure there's not too many Hebrews running around in Egypt? And so they got together in their synod or whoever their ruling uh, groups were, and they came up with a public policy where they were going to put God's people, the Hebrews, into hard labor from the beginning of the day all the way through the day. They were going to be laying bricks and building things, and they were basically in slave labor to Egypt. And no joke, the reason that this became public policy in Egypt was because they thought, okay, if the Hebrews are working from the beginning of the day all the way till sundown, and they're going to be out in the heat, and they're doing hard manual labor, there's no way they'll have any energy to make any more Hebrew babies. This was real public policy, and they thought, if we work them to death, there's no way they'll have any energy when they get home to make more babies. And they thought this would stem the population of the Hebrews. And after they started that, and, and God's people, the Hebrews, were in slavery and this hard labor for a long time, it didn't slow down the population enough And so Egyptian authorities got together all the midwives in Egypt, all the people that were in charge of bringing new babies into the world, and they came up with this really dark, sinister policy saying that, hey, if you give birth to a Hebrew family and it's a boy, you need to make sure that you kill that Hebrew baby boy. And they thought this was a way that we would stem the population of the Hebrews as well. Another dark policy that the Egyptians came up with because they were afraid of their neighbor. And so this happens, and this is where Moses comes in this story, because we meet Moses' mother, who had made a deal with their midwife at the time, and they decide that they're going to basically not tell anybody that Moses was a boy, but they're going to let Moses' life go to chance. And so they place Moses in a basket and put him down the Nile River, just hoping that somebody finds this baby and shows mercy on this baby. That's how dark things got. They gave Moses' life up to chance, they thought it was better than just him being born to a regular midwife. And so Moses is floating down the river, and lo and behold, who finds Moses is none other than the Pharaoh's daughter, Egyptian royalty at the time. And Pharaoh's daughter takes to this baby and names him Moses, which Moses actually means out of the river. That one was free for this morning. It means out of the river. They take Moses, and Moses ends up having this charmed, enchanted, royal, luxurious life in Pharaoh's palace. I mean, he was, a, you know, he was supposed to be dead because he was a Hebrew boy, but because Pharaoh's daughter found him, he lives and grows up as a prince of Egypt, which is amazing. And he lives this incredible life of luxury, and he's taken into the Egyptian pharaoh's family and has everything he can possibly imagine, and life is really amazing for the longest time. But when Moses becomes a young man, he sees something someday, and it just sets something off inside of him. He sees an Egyptian slave driver who is torturing and beating a Hebrew worker. And Moses knew that he was actually a Hebrew who was living with the Egyptian royalty, And so something just snapped inside of him, and he went into a fit of rage. And in an attempt to protect this Hebrew slave, he ends up killing this slave driver. And it wasn't in private at all, but people saw Moses do this. And in this moment, when Moses probably had blood on his hands from a fit of rage, he decides he needs to get out of Dodge. 
And so he leaves everything he's ever known in Egypt, all of his reputation, all of his luxury, all of his lifestyle, and he leaves basically and goes to this place called Midian, which is like the witness protection program of the ancient world. It's a place that nobody really knew much about. They were farmers and they were shepherds and they lived out on the land and didn't have any kind of money or luxury at all. But Moses settles down in this community called Midian and he meets a girl and he starts a family and he sort of enfolds into this community hoping that he can leave his whole past behind him and move forward. That is until one day he has this incredible, crazy, supernatural experience when he's out looking for one of his sheep. And what he finds is he finds this bush that's on fire, which is just weird enough when you're in the middle of the wilderness to find a bush on fire. But what made this really crazy was that the bush wasn't being consumed. It wasn't burning up. And then to take things to the next level, this bush starts talking to Moses. And this is where I believe, this is not in the text, but I believe Moses kind of peed down his tunic a little bit at this moment. That's exactly what I would be doing. But Moses is pretty scared because this bush starts talking to him. And the bush says that, hey, Moses, I am, basically saying that, hey, I am God. I am the God of your ancestors. And he starts telling him things. And there's this incredible scene that we find in Exodus chapter 3. And I'd like to read a couple passages for you. Exodus chapter 3 of what this bush says to Moses. We'll start in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3. If you want to follow along on your phone or if you have a Bible with you, this is what the Lord told him. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. And you can imagine when Moses hears this, he's like, let's go. This is amazing. God, you have heard the cries of your people, my people that are in slavery in Egypt. This is amazing. You're going to sweep in and you're going to save the day. God, this is incredible. And Moses is real pumped. He's real hyped for about 10 seconds until the bush or God speaking through the bush says this very next thing to Moses. In verse 9. The bush says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. In verse 10, he says this, now you go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. And if Moses had any pee left, (laughs) this is where the rest of it went, right? He's like, wait, what? What are you talking about, bush? (laughs) I don't know what he said. He's like, what are you kidding me? I thought you were going to do this, God. And and the bush says back to Moses, no, like you're the one that I'm going to use. You are going to do the legwork. You are the one that is going to deliver these people, and I'm going to do it through you. And this was a really crazy moment. I don't know about you, um, but in my life, sometimes when people put an opportunity in front of me, I have an exclamation mark. And I'm like, yes, let's go. This is amazing. But more often than not, um, I'm a question mark kind of person. Any question mark people here in the park with me this morning? When somebody puts something in front of you, maybe it's a supervisor at work, or maybe it's one of your leaders here at the church, or maybe at school, whatever it might be, when they put something in front of you thinking, hey, I'd like for you to do this, I have like a million questions. Like, how are we going to pay for it? Are you sure I'm the right person? Have you asked this person? Maybe they'd be better. I have lots of different questions. 
And if you're a question mark kind of person, this is exactly who Moses was as well. You have a lot in common with Moses. And so what we have in the text next are a lot of interactions and a lot of questions where Moses is basically wrestling with God saying, hey, I am not your boy to go do this. But God's got bigger plans involved. So we'll pick up first. And the first question that uh, Moses poses to God is in verses 11 and 12. But Moses immediately, he protests to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He's questioning his own identity and his ability to do this. He doesn't, he's like, you've got the wrong guy, God. But God immediately answered back, I will be with you. I love how God doesn't answer the question with a three-step plan or a five-year vision, but God answers the question of Moses and his ability and says, no, no, you don't understand. I will be with you. I'm going to be there every step of the way, and that's all you need to know, Moses, because nothing is impossible for me. Nothing is too difficult for me. And so God quips back this answer that I will be with you no matter what, even if you don't feel good enough. I know many of us here, myself included, we've got times when we don't feel good enough to do the thing that God's placed in front of us. And I think God might want to whisper to us this morning, hey, I will be with you. Keep your eyes off of yourself and your quality and keep your eyes fixed on me and the quality of my strength and my faithfulness that I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Moses continues and asks another question. He's protesting with God, wrestling with God about this task that he's put in front of him. In verse 13, Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? He's basically saying, On whose authority will I just walk and stroll back into Egypt and say, Hey, um, you guys need to let these slaves go? And this God told me. He's basically nervous. He's like, Whose authority am I going to do this on? And then God speaks right back to him in verse 14. And God replied to Moses, tell them that I am who I am sent you. This, say this to the people of Israel, that I am sent me to you. In other words, and scholars believe that when God was calling himself I am, he's basically saying, tell them that the God that truly exists is sending you. The God who was there before creation, the God who put creation into motion like we sang about this morning, that God is sending you. Tell them that the one God who's holding everything in the palm of his hand, who places rulers in positions and moves rulers out of positions and goes through every kind of human empire possibly and is supreme over them, tell them that that God sent you. That's whose authority you are walking on, Moses. So don't be too nervous about that. I think so often, just like Moses, we have the questions of, you know, like, but is anybody going to take me seriously? I, do I have the experience and do I have the authority to actually make a move like that? And God's saying, you know, tell them that I'm with them. I'm with them and I'm the one that sent you. The one who's above it all sent you. And Moses continues in the next chapter, chapter 4. This goes on for a while where they're just sort of arguing with each other back and forth. And Moses is not getting the hint at all. But in verse 10, Moses starts to worry about his abilities to do this. Moses pleaded with the Lord in verse 10, O Lord, I'm not very good with words. I have never, ever been, and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? I love the question that God asks Moses back. Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, Moses, he had a stuttering issue 
And he was not a great public speaker because of that. And his confidence was hit because of that. And he thought, how am I going to come in and lead people? I don't have the ability. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the resume to walk in here and do this, God. What are you thinking? And God says, no, no, no. You've got your eyes on yourself again. Trust me, I know that you can do this. And I will provide a way for you to do this. So keep your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on me. Know that I will be there with you. And then there's one more argument that God and Moses has because Moses is thinking, hey, remember, I left Egypt in the first place because I was wanted for murder. I got blood on my hands. I probably got posters up saying I'm wanted. And in verse 19, God says he takes care of that as well. And right before Moses left Midian, in verse 19, the Lord said to him, return to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you have died. They're out of the way. Don't worry about that. I have provided a way for you, Moses. God says, you've got all these excuses, Moses, but I see in you a leader. I see in you someone who's going to make an impact, and you have holy potential to make an eternal impact, Moses. I will take care of every one of your excuses. You're my guy. And I think that we have lots of excuses today, and we've got lots of question marks, but I think what God wants to whisper to you this morning, is that you're my guy. You're my girl. I know that you've got this potential inside of you. So don't sit on the sidelines. Get into the game because I see in you a leader, somebody who can make an impact. And I have a grander vision for your life than what you have for your life. I think that's what he wants to whisper to us. And I know so often when we hear a story out of the scriptures like this, Um, we disqualify ourselves sometimes even further because we think, I mean, like God spoke directly to Moses through a burning bush, and then Moses went on to lead this movement. And if you don't know the rest of the story, Moses ends up leading this movement, marching into his old town with the power of God at his side, and they set the, the Israelites or the Hebrews free from slavery with God's help right alongside of them. So God did this incredible thing through him. And so we often think to ourselves, um, yeah, like, I'm a mom with three kids at home, I'm no Moses, <laughs> or I'm a mechanic, or I'm a lawyer, or I sell insurance, I'm not like a, a leader who's going to march in and tell the mayor of Logansport to let my people go, right? That's not our story, and so we disqualify ourselves even more, because we think that the only way that God wants to use us are in these huge, big, epic, sweeping ways, and I think we sometimes, we, we think think the wrong way about the way that God wants to use us. Uh, I was thinking back in 2009, there were two hit movies that came along that year that I saw. One was a movie called Selma, and it was about the, it was the story of Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how he led the civil rights movement in our country and how he led marches against lots of different oppositions and lots of different pain and threats and death surrounding him and all of his friends and his family. He still marched forward because he had a dream that our country was a more beautiful thing than it was actually living out. And so he moved forward in strength and in power and this this determined spirit to let this dream become a reality. And he led hundreds of people, thousands of people, and changed the face of a nation. And it was an epic story of leadership. But there was another movie that was a big hit in 2009, and it was a smaller picture but I think it was still so powerful. It was a movie by the name of The Blind Side. Did anybody see The Blind Side? Yeah, it's an awesome, awesome movie. It was about 
uh, this family, the Tui family, who were an affluent family, cursed with lots of resources. And they, uh, Leanne Tui, the mom of this family, um, she ran into this young man, Michael, who was down on his luck. He didn't have a home. He didn't have unconditional love, which is so vital to the development of a human being. And he had all this potential. But Leanne saw there was something more inside of him. But he just needed this unconditional love and this home base where he could grow and develop. And so what ended up happening was Leanne brought Michael into their family. And it changed his story forever. And he went on to become a Super Bowl champion to play in the NFL. He's still in the NFL. And it just changed the trajectory of this one person's story and their life so much because they said, come on in. You're part of our family. I want to give you something. I can't change the whole world, but I can change the world in you, Michael. So come on in. You are welcome here. And it was a powerful, powerful story. And I think that is a story of incredible leadership, of stepping into what God has called us into as well. It doesn't have to be the epic, big stories like Moses or Martin Luther King Jr. It can be as simple as looking to your left or your right and saying, God, where can you use me today? Because I believe that God has a grander vision for your life than you can possibly imagine. But so often that grander vision for your life, it begins with you simply saying yes. It just begins with a spirit inside of you that says, yes, God, I'll try this. Yes, God, I am open. Oh, the incredible stories that are changed forever when you and I walk into a situation and instead of throwing every question mark at them or instead of ghosting their text message and never texting them back, we say, yes, I'm in. I'll try it. It changes everything, you guys. And for us to discover our place in serving and giving ourselves away so that we can really experience the life God created us to have, it starts with us having a willingness to say, yes, God, I'm open. This is something I love inside of my church in Kokomo because we hear stories like this all the time, just as I'm sure you hear stories like this all the time. People that just say yes, and from that one moment of saying yes, you can trace the story and the life change and the legacy down a long way. I was thinking this morning as I was driving over, I wasn't going to share this, um, but when I was leading the student ministries at our church about six years ago, um, there was this kid came in. I was a, a sophomore small group leader of high school students. And uh, this kid comes in, he was like head down, he didn't want to talk to anybody. During the whole night, I thought he just hated every moment of it. Like we were playing a game, he wasn't into it. Uh, During worship, he was looking at his phone. During the talk that I was giving, I was sure he did not hear a word that I said. And I told my wife as we were driving away, we had this new kid named Alan. I don't think I'll probably ever see him again. (laughs) And it was like such a big fail, I was just so disappointed about it. But you know what, Alan came back that next week. And he came back the next week. And then he started opening up in small group. And he started making jokes and really opening up to other guys and other leaders. And he became sort of a leader of that student ministry. So much so that he graduated high school. And I remember talking to him after our senior Sunday. I'm like, hey, Alan, I want you to consider something. We've got a group of eighth grade boys that they need a small group later next year. I would love for you to consider to pray about being their leader. Because I see in you that you can do for them what I did for you. And he's like, oh, really, really? And, I, and again, I left thinking he was going to say no, but he texts me like 10 minutes later. I haven't even made it home yet. He's like, I'm in. I'm all in. And you know what Alan did? As a freshman in college, all the way through his 
college years, which your college years can be your most selfish four years of your life where you're only focused on yourself, every Sunday, Alan showed up for those boys. And they were some eighth grade squirrels at the beginning, you guys. But he showed up for them eighth grade year, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and all the way through their senior year. And my friend Alan, who at one point just showed up to church looking like he hated it, he ended up baptizing seven of those high school kids. And some of, Isn't that an amazing story? But what I want you to grab, what I want you to grab this morning is that it all started with him being willing and saying, yes, I'll try it. I'm open. Somebody says, I see this in you. And he said, yes, I am open to trying this. Uh, there's another guy who's an incredible business leader in our community, uh, and he does real estate, and he's just a high-octane leader. And uh, we've had this desire in our church for the last couple years um, to increase the amount of men that serve in our kids' ministry, in our family ministry. There's always a lot of moms, a lot of women that are willing to give up some time to sit with some elementary or preschool kids. Um, But dads and men, it's just been a struggle for us for many years. And so I started praying with our Oak Brook Kids director, and we just started praying and seeking men out. We're like, God, give us names to ask men. And um, this guy named Dave, who's this incredible leader, um, I had a conversation with him and asked him to consider leading kindergarten boys on Sunday morning. And again, I walked into it so faithless. I'm thinking, this guy is busy. He's going to think this is beneath him. There's no way he's going to say yes to this. And I got like three sentences in. He's like, I am in. I am all in. He's like considered this challenge that I love about him. And then what's funny is that we kind of hoodwinked him because the first Sunday he showed up to lead kindergarten boys, and there were 19 kindergarten boys there. Um, But he came back, and we got an assistant, so we got that. But what's so incredible is that he just keeps showing up. Every other week he's there. He rotates with one other guy. He's there every other week, and he loves these boys. And you can see the difference that it made, that there was a man speaking to these boys, not just a woman speaking to these boys, a different authority, a different air in the room. And when Dave, I love this about Dave, he's a high-octane business leader, but when they're singing and they're dancing around in our kids' rooms, Dave is doing all the dance moves. Like He's like Michael Jackson up there doing all the dance moves, not too cool at all. And because of that, because of that, these boys are incredible. They love it. They can't wait for worship. They're doing all the dance moves. They can't wait to be there. And his impact is just an incredible thing. And one, and one of those boys, uh, next week, he's gone through a, a little course that we offer at our church to understand salvation and baptism. And he's going to get baptized next week, and he wants Dave in the tank with him, this kindergarten boy, because he's helped him so much. How incredible is that, you guys? And it all, all starts. It all starts with a willingness to say yes so for you, if you're on the sidelines this morning, I just want to encourage you to ask God to give you a spirit that will say yes, because that's where your grander vision will begin. That's what Moses found after God wrestled him to the ground and he finally said yes. We're still talking about Moses today because he said yes to this grander vision that God saw in him. Now, not only does your grander vision with God begin when you have a willingness to say yes, but it also begins, I believe, when you find your unique fit into the kingdom, into the local church, into revolution. You know, I I thought for the longest time that um, there were a couple people that had skills in the church, and I just needed to copycat them. I just needed to, to do exactly what they did, and that's what it looked like for me to be mature. There was a part of me that thought that, you know, church unity was 
you know, uniformity. And I needed to talk like this specific person or I needed to act like this specific person all the time. And if it was hard for me to do those things, I thought there was something wrong with me. And we can sort of fall into that trap sometimes thinking, well, I'm just not like them. I'm not like them, so I can't really serve anywhere inside of the church. And the reality is that each and every person on planet Earth, this is what's true, is that they were created in the image of God. But it doesn't mean that that image of God looks the exact same on everybody. There's diversity. There's a uniqueness inside of the image of God mixed with your personality and your experiences, and that's who you are. I love Paul in the New Testament writing to a church in Corinth. He's explaining to these like early Christians in this crazy place called Corinth, He's explaining to them that, hey, God has given each and every one of you different kinds of what he calls spiritual gifts. I like to call them like spiritual superpowers. Because there's these things that we have that not everybody has, but we need to use to advance the kingdom, to advance this revolution that God has placed us in. And he's explaining to this church in Corinth that not everybody looks the same, but there is power and diversity of these spiritual superpowers, these spiritual gifts and abilities that God has given us. And he starts in chapter 12, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 12. He says, the human body has many parts, the many in, but many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Paul speaks in an illustration. He says, the church, more than an organization, more than a gathering of people, it's like the body of Christ on this earth. And the body has lots of different parts And they all play different roles. He continues in verse 14. I love this illustration that he walks through. He says, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you even hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. So much happening in this, but I want, what I want you to pick up is that we need each other for this thing called the church to work, to reach Logan Sport in Indiana. We need each other and all the different gifts that we have. That you don't have to be just like the person you're sitting next to. God created you uniquely. So discover your fit, discover your spiritual gifts that you have and find a way that you can use that for the good of your community, for the good of your neighbors, for the good of this world. I, I think of it this way. There, there are things that you just are naturally great at. Like you just fall into and it makes sense for you. And then there are things that are difficult for you. It feels like work. It doesn't feel like you're in your flow. Uh, I love sports. And so I was thinking about Michael Jordan this week. I mean, Michael Jordan practiced so incredibly hard. He spent so many hours in the gym. But there was something about when he got on a basketball court and he had the ball in his hands and the clock was going down And he could see everything. He could see the way the play was going to develop. He could visualize the ball going through the hoop or making that great pass to Steve Kerr for the last second shot. He could visualize it all because he was in his flow when he played basketball. It just made sense. That's why he's the greatest of all time. There's my little mic drop there. Um, But, you know, he was incredible at it. But in 1993, he tried something else. 
At the end of 1993 and in 1994, um, he quit basketball, and he played baseball for a double-A team called the Birmingham Barons. And he was not good. He struggled. It was hard for people to watch. Even though they sold so many tickets, Michael Jordan did not play baseball very well. He was not in his flow. He just looked awkward. It was difficult for him at every step of the way. But basketball, man, it wasn't like that with Michael Jordan. He came back into the league, and he took over and won three more championships in basketball. And what I, wanna, what I want you to gather from that is that there are things that you can do inside of the church, spiritual gifts that you have that you can employ, that it feels like you're just in your flow. And then there are things that you should stay away from because it ain't you, baby. It's not you at all. It's like if you're swimming, you can swim upstream and struggle against the tide, against the current the whole way. Or you can go downstream and just let the water push you and propel you and you're in the flow of exactly where you need to be. So this morning, I know as we're getting ready to close here in a couple minutes, I know that the greeters or the ushers are going to have these things called a spiritual gift assessment that we've been talking about. And I cannot encourage you and challenge you enough to take one of these things home and to fill it out and spend 20, 30 minutes with it. Because what it does is it helps you discover your fit, the way that God uniquely created and designed and shaped you to serve. Find that out for yourself. Don't do something just because your friend's doing it or your family member's doing it because it might not be you, but God has uniquely shaped you to serve in your fit. Where can you serve the church and serve your community where you're swimming downstream? That's what Anthony wants for you. That's what we want for every single person here. My friends, as I close, I just want to encourage you with this that God has a grander vision for your life than you do. God's got a bigger plan, a more beautiful picture for your life than what you could even dream up. I believe that to the core of who I am. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your current circumstances or challenges are. I don't care about that stuff because I know that God's got a bigger plan for you and he can use anybody He used Moses, who was a murderer, deserter, shepherd guy. (laughs) He can use you, and he will use you. But your grander vision begins when you have a yes inside of you. To say, yes, I'll try it. Yes, I'm open. And it begins when you find your unique fit, what your spiritual gifts are and how they can fit in to the church. Because the church is the most incredible thing going on in the world, and it's God's plan A for rescuing this world. And let me tell you, there's no plan B. So find your place. Live into the grander vision that God has for you. And when God whispers to you, I see in you something more, don't argue with him because he's going to win the argument. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are not dependent on our mess. You see through that and beyond that. God, where you see Or where we see excuses, you see opportunities. God, we thank you so much for what you're doing through this church, in this community, and beyond. God, I just pray for some people this morning maybe to leave the sidelines and to get into the game, to discover what you've got for them. Because we need all of us in the game so we can live out the story that you're writing for Revolution Community Church for Logan Sport, for Indiana, and for your world. God, we love you and we thank you. Everybody agreed and said, amen.
Joel said that the church is God's plan A to reach this world. We believe that. The church is the hope of the world. There's no plan B. It's, and, and, and we've been saying, th- that, like, what God wants to remind us of this summer is, like, like we've been saying the last couple of weeks, yeah, we're getting our very first building. We own it, right? We're going to be moving into it in just six, seven weeks. The church is not that building. It's a tool the church uses. The church is the body. It's us right here in the park, in these lawn chairs right now. And God wants to use us. It's not going to be a building that changes Logan Sport in North Central Indiana and beyond. It's us together finding out our shape and saying, God, I'm in. Yes. Yes, I'm in. Just where, where, where do you want me? And, and we believe that this assessment, these assessments that we're going to be asking like everyone to take as you leave the park today and over the next several weeks, like filling that assessment out and bringing it back, that's your yes. As we're trying to discover, okay, what is every person's unique shape in the body of Christ? So we can make that ask and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? So taking this assessment as you leave and filling it out and bringing it back, that is saying yes. And we're going to get with you about some specifics.